This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strength of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you've found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court vacated and remanded honest services convictions for Jeff Skilling, Conrad Black, and Bruce Wyrocks. Writing for the majority, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg notes that the law doesn't encompass behavior that goes beyond bribes and kickbacks. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and this is the ABA Journal Podcast. I'm joined by Ann Weissman, who submitted amicus brief for the government and U.S. v. Black on behalf of Citizens for Ethics. Also joining us are Ron Safer, who represents Black v. U.S. defendant Mark Kipnis, and Donald Ayer, who represents Bruce Wyrotch, a former Alaska lawmaker. Ron, given the opinion released today, are we still going to see people who aren't in politics, like your client, Mr. Kipnis, charged with honest services violations? Well, we're not going to see people like my client, Mark, uh, charged with honest services because the Supreme Court just said that his type of conduct that is something that perhaps didn't live up to the standards that we might expect, but certainly a long way from bribes or kickbacks are not criminal. I think we will see people in the private sector who uh, are charged with taking bribes and kickbacks. Uh, They will continue to be charged with honest services frauds under this opinion. Okay. Don, what do you think? I, I agree with that. I don't know that I have a lot to add. I, I know the the whole practice of pursuing this theory, even before the statute was enacted back before McNally, um, the core of it really was, I think, aimed at public officials, and, and it really was, as the court suggests, aimed at bribery and kickbacks of someone who's got a public power to use, and they misuse it when someone bribes them. But it's absolutely right that, you know, it's certainly possible, and I imagine it goes on, that private individuals can be bribed too, and if they are, the statute certainly covers them. And I would think, I know that general counsels have been talking about this case for a while, particularly with Mark Kipnis. Um, I would think a lot of the general counsel lawyers breathed a huge sigh of relief today. Would you agree with that? I, I would, because the problem with Mark's case was he got no money, zero and really facilitated uh, no payments that were that anybody would have looked at contemporaneously and said, that's illegal. They may have looked at them contemporaneously and said, that's unwise, that's bad corporate governance, but no one would have looked at them and said, that is a theft or a, a fraud on the shareholders. And, and so when you get that far from the core of the statute and you start criminalizing the conduct that general counsel are involved in on a day-to-day basis, and they have to make that judgment call, uh, that, that's tough to go to sleep at night. Okay. Thanks, Ron. And I mean, as we've just said, the majority notes the law applies to bribes and kickbacks. Now, given that, what's left of the statute? Just well, bribes and kickbacks or something else? I, I think not much is left. As far as federalist st- 
uh, federal officials, the statute is now completely redundant because it's our, it already, without the honest services fraud, there's another law that prohibits federal officials from accepting bribes and kickbacks. So the only sort of vitality left, I think, in the honest services fraud is that now it can be, you, it's criminalizing in a federal law bribes and kickbacks for private officials and state and local government officials. Um, but I think the core, I actually disagree with the majority opinion in a lot of ways, but I think the core of the statute is not bribes and kickbacks just as they have been criminalized under federal law. Um, I think there's a lot of conduct that most of us would agree should be illegal. The problem with relying on bribes and kickback laws is that the burden of proof is so high and so difficult. It's very difficult to prove a direct quid pro quo. And I think there are a lot of people because of that who have been prosecuted under the honest services fraud statute that now their prosecutions will probably be thrown out or in great jeopardy. Well, but the, I mean, the thing, the thing, the, 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 what can happen now if, if there isn't any kind of a deficiency there in terms of conduct that needs to be prohibited or even criminally, criminally punished is legislature, state, and federal can pass laws defining what needs to be disclosed. And that's the problem with this law as it was being applied. The government essentially in a variety of prosecutions was coming in and um, deciding that it didn't like certain conduct and then deciding that it breached the duty of loyalty and then seeing if they could convince a jury to throw somebody in jail. But nobody could tell whether the conduct needed to be uh, – whether the disclosure actually was required or not. So I, I think what's really good about this is if if there is a further need for – requirements and even for criminally punishable uh, disclosure requirements that's something the legislatures can now enact but they need to define what's what's required I would just to add you know we have proposed a legislative fix anticipating this ruling there already is a federal statute on the books 18 USC section 208 that applies to employees of the executive branch and basically says that they if they they cannot take any official act that would affect their own personal financial interests and the law is quite specific and to my knowledge it's not been subject to the same kinds of challenges that the honest services fraud has been subject to in terms of constitutionally vague for, vo- for constitutionally vague so i think if this section were extended to cover members of congress and state and local officials at least at that to that extent it would be a way to sweep in conduct that I think Congress did intend to sweep in through the honest services fraud statute. Ron, what do you think? I think well, I, uh, it's a good idea to have Congress decide this, and then we don't have to guess. I, mean, I, uh, I think that under the current law, it has been stretched so far, and we can – argue and have argued to the Supreme Court and elsewhere what the core of the statute was or what Congress intended, Congress ought to say what they intend. Congress ought to say what is a crime. Clearly, there is nothing in the criminal law that is more sacrosanct than the concept of fair notice. Before you can be put in jail for something, you have to know it is a crime. Let's Let's let Congress tell us. Well, and I'll put this out there to all of you, and Don and Ron. Do you expect that Congress is going to strengthen the honest services fraud statute, much like it did after U.S. v. McNally? 
Well, I, I think there. I, I don't know the answer to that, and I, I guess I think a couple of things. One is uh, McNally was obviously a categorical ruling that no intangible rights were covered at all. This is this is certainly not that. To the contrary, they have preserved what I think is fairly described as the core of what everybody's always had in mind. Um, and the second thing, I guess, which I don't know how to evaluate, is Congress seems to have a lot on its plate at the moment. So I don't know whether they're going to be ready to step up to this. What, what we know is the last time they tried to do this, they did an abominable job of it. So they're going to have to think a lot harder about defining what the crime is if they want to get into doing so. And what do you think? Well, our sense is that right now, at least, um, there hasn't been a, a great deal of appetite in Congress to have you know another go at it through a comprehensive type of honest services fraud statute um and i think you know the the court today in a footnote i think makes it clear that if congress wants to take this up again you know there's some pretty high hurdles they have to get over um and i think having now been struck down twice by the supreme court that Congress is going to be, I think, pretty wary of trying to come out with a, you know, sort of omnibus honest services fraud statute, which is why I, I think it may be more appealing to them to do kind of a narrower fix, you know, such as the one we, we are proposing. There may be others as well to deal with it in the context of existing statutes. Okay. And, Don, what does the opinion today mean for people who are serving honest services sentences right now, like, say, Robert Sorich. He was a deputy in Chicago Mayor Richard Daley's administration. He was convicted under the law for rigging city hiring. What does it mean for him? Well, I, I don't want to – I haven't looked at his case carefully mm -hmm. enough to tell you exactly, but what I do think is true is that is that anyone who was convicted on a theory of um, – undisclosed conflict of interest or self-dealing, which is what the court categorically said the statute doesn't reach, um, would have a pretty good argument for getting his, his case thrown out. Now, there are going to be factual issues in all of those cases, and it's, you know, it's going to take some time to unwind uh, all of that, but I, I think there's a real possibility there for, for people. And I don't know the number, but it's if you read opinions over the last 10 years, there's a lot of people who are uh, who've been prosecuted on that sort of a theory. Ron, what do you think? I, I agree. This is, yeah. this is going to have a widespread impact on, on people who are at this moment sitting in jail for crimes that where they profited uh, allegedly or now proved at the expense of either their employer or, or the government uh, but did not engage in a bribe and kickback, and all of those cases are going to come back. So you think, I mean, for Storage, where you're here in Chicago, you pro you're pretty familiar with the case, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. yes, I am. And, uh, <laughs> is I think he going to walk out of South Dakota? or what? <laughs> Yeah, I think the Storage case is going to be right back in the Seventh Circuit, and uh, I think he's got a pretty good argument. And also, uh, Ron, here in Chicago, what do you think this opinion means for Patrick Fitzgerald? Well, uh, you know, I, I think Pat Fitzgerald saw the handwriting on the wall. He certainly acted to reframe the Blagojevich indictment to withstand this opinion. He has been a leader, and the, the Northern District of Illinois has been a leader over the years, even before him, in 
uh, aggressively prosecuting honest services frauds. I I don't think it's going to do anything to his star. Uh, His star certainly shines bright and will continue to do that. But I do think it's going to change the nature of the cases that, that are brought. Do you get a sense that he's going to stay in the U.S. attorney spot here in the Northern District, or maybe he's going to move on? I think he's got a job for life if mm-hmm. he wants it. Uh, nobody's going to ask him to leave. Uh, you know, so I don't. I, you'd have to see if there's a job out there that he would get appointed to mm-hmm. that's uh, more attractive to him. Don, what are your thoughts on people like Fitzgerald who've been very have done a lot of honest services cases for the government in the past ten years? I don't, I, 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 I don't have an opinion about Pat Fitzgerald because I, I haven't followed it. I, I know it's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff, and what I, I do have an opinion though about the Justice Department's handling and and enforcement of this statute in general. And I, I'm speaking from sort of the top down perspective. I, I, I think it's not a very bright chapter um, that you, you had a statute that I think it's accurate to say it did have a core in it. Um, it's the core is pretty much what the court has said it is. And the government has, in quite a number of cases, pushed the envelope in a very imprudent way. And in a way that, frankly, any reasonable person would see is unreasonable um, and, and really unfair to people um, in terms of notice uh, of what they've done. And, and uh, I argued the McNally case, and when I argued that case in, in defending the prosecution, I stood up in front of the Supreme Court and I said, you know, there are, there's a lot of extravagant language in a lot of cases. Um, and the government essentially took that extravagant language and ran with it in a number of these cases that have made this decision necessary. And I, I think it's a sad thing that they did, because I think good judgment would have caused them not to do it. Um, they are not under an obligation to push the envelope beyond the degree and beyond the point of prudence. And they did that, and they made it necessary for this, this, these decisions to be rendered. And I think that's not, as I say, a, 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 a bright spot on their reputation. And do you have anything to add to that? Well, yes, I I agree with Don that I think that in general um, this has not been a bright time for the Justice Department and the public integrity section. And there are any number of prosecutions, both under honest services fraud and under statutes, that you can point to as examples of that. You know, I guess I think, though, there's the fact that there have been abuses and a statute maybe at its outer edges has been pushed too far isn't a reason to cut it back to the extent that this court did. And I guess like, unlike um, your other two guests here, I disagree that the court has, has adequately preserved what I think is the core of the honest services fraud uh, statute as Congress intended. So my concern is that prosecutors like Patrick Fitzgerald and others have really now been deprived of an effective tool in fighting public corruption, which, of course, was the position we took in the Supreme Court and why we participated as a good government group. And, I mean, I certainly agree that there are a lot of prosecutions that are now in question. I understand that that was the situation after McNally, and we're going to go through another sort of time of upheaval as we sort out what this means. But, again, I am not as confident as the others that 
the true core of the honest service fraud statute has been adequately preserved. And how about, let's talk about um, Illinois' former governor, Rob Blagojevich, whose trial is going on probably right now, is my guess. Um, are any of you surprised that U.S. District Court Judge James Zagel today, he denied a defense request for a recess, and he said that the opinion may not offer much hope for Blagojevich. At least that's what's been reported. Does that surprise any of you? And what do you think that these opinions mean for the Blagojevich case? Well, it, it's not surprising for two reasons. Number one, they they redrafted the indictment uh, back in March when they, after the oral arguments in these three cases, when they saw the handwriting on the wall, and they did so uh, to segregate out the honest services fraud counts and to allow it to uh, withstand anything, including the Supreme Court throwing out the, uh, the, the statute. The Supreme Court, of course, did not do that. And therefore, the second point is the Blagojevich case is all about bribes and kickbacks. It is all about the allegations are that it's all about him selling his office for money to uh, to actually there are quid pro quos there are kickbacks uh, so this is not this is squarely in the heartland of the honest service mm. fraud. So, Ron, do you think that maybe today's opinion maybe was bad for the Blagojevich defense? It, it was. It did not go far enough for the Blagojevich defense. Okay. They would have liked to have seen the statute be declared unconstitutional. That is the only thing, in my view, and, and I have studied the indictment. Uh, that's the only thing that really would have endangered or changed in any way the government's case. I see. Do you agree with that, Don? I, I think that's right. I'm not not as familiar with the the details of the case, but I know they they, they did redraft it. I, I think that's I, th I think that's probably right. For all of you, I'm also curious. Do you think after today's opinion, are we going to see more definition of what amounts to a bribe or a kickback? Well, I I I think yes, and I and I think I've been been thinking about it in terms of what will be required, and it seems to me that. The, there isn't a lot of uncertainty, um, but there may be a little. Um, and I guess what I would say is that it's pretty clear, obviously, that if there's a payment, a quid pro quo payment of some sort, that's going to be a case. Um, if there's a solicitation of a payment, but no actual payment, but a clear solicitation, I think that's going to state a violation. And the third category that I think is interesting to think about is supposing you have neither of those, but the government comes in and essentially says, based on circumstantial evidence, that there's an agreement here, a kind of a wink and a nod and a, um, you know, a relationship um, of a sort, and they want the jury to infer a mutual intention that if so-and-so does such and such, the other fellow will do so-and-so. And and what's interesting about that, so in essence, what that would amount to, I think, would be circumstantial proof of an agreement to a quid pro quo arrangement, but no explicit agreement and no explicit solicitation. What's interesting about that is that starts to look and feel 
a little bit like the undisclosed conflict of interest situation that the court categorically threw out. And, you know, it's it, you can think about a million different hypotheticals, uh, but I think that's the one area that I think is going to be interesting to see how the government tries to, if it does, expand upon that and try to make cases there on the theory that there is a there is essentially a, a bribe or a kickback agreement, even though there's no explicit agreement. Well, I've been interested in that as well, because on the other hand, I mean, could that just be, that's politics? Is that, what do you think, Anne? Well, I, I want to just say, I mean, I, I agree with Don, and I think when I talk about this as a problem of proof, that's where I think the problem has been. I don't think it's so much a definition of what constitutes a bribe or kickback, but what kind of proof do you have? And I think that the honest services fraud and statute until now has served as a backstop when you can't come in and show that explicit quid pro quo. Some of the convictions, I just want to say, that I think may be at risk here are some of the Abramoff-related ones. I mean, mm. if you're a member of Congress and you are wined and dined and you are given tickets to sporting events and you are flown on a lavish junket to Scotland for golf and you are given gifts, and it's not in return for an explicit promise to support legislation, but it's to uh, establish a relationship so a lobbyist knows when he or she comes calling on you, you will take the call and do what they want. Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of case I worry about. How is it going to fit in? I think it's harder to pr – I mean, my understanding in talking to prosecutors is that the hardest thing with bribe with a bribery case is proving that, you know, explicit quid pro quo. And if you don't have that, is that conduct going to continue to be criminalized? So, you know, maybe um, if I'm understanding Don, maybe he's right that it will come out more in terms of expanding what a bribery kickback is. But if not, I think that's what we've lost today in part. Well, what, and what, what – so that politician – who who is wined and dined has to disclose that for the world to see and what's wrong with saying to the voters you don't like that vote him out of office rather well, than have the the united states attorney who is charged with uh t with fighting terrorism who is charged with fighting drug crimes who is charged with fighting uh, financial fraud, immigration, uh, a hundred other things with limited resources, policing good government in the criminal courts. Because it's already policed for federal employees. I don't know why Congress should be exempt from that. I, I don't think the self-reporting goes far enough. I think it particularly doesn't go far enough when we have ethics committees in Congress that are notorious for basically doing nothing, when we have a federal election commission that has not been an effective voice or force in all of this. So I very much disagree. I think there needs to be a role for the – I think this conduct continues, needs to be criminalized. I think so, because, we as, because, as members of the public are in, and as voters are entitled to that. I agree that voting is a check, but it's only a check every four years or every two years or every six years or however often the public official gets to run again. And what about in the interim? So because we have institutions that are supposed to do this but are failing, we ought to make sure that, the, that our jail cells – no, I think this is I think this is a legitimate crime and I think the American public will agree. So, 
You know, I don't What's disagree the, with you that this is just a kind of throwaway thing that we shouldn't waste our time with. But what is the crime, Anne? I, I mean, I'm just trying to understand. It seems to me the way the way this opinion has been written, written, the government can only prevail if 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 the jury's convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that there's an agreement that is concrete that says if you do this, I'll do this. Yes. And what you described in in the in the cases you were talking about was the situation where you know I take people places and do things, and I expect they'll take my phone calls and and hopefully help me if they can. And and it doesn't sound to me like, described in that way, that adds up to a quid pro quo. So if you want to make that criminal, you need another law. Well, I would... I would say, first of all, I think it's a matter of degree. I mean, what the practices you're describing go on every day in Washington. Washington wouldn't function right. if that couldn't happen. But I think we, I think it, at a certain level, it rises to more than that. At a certain level, I think it is the equivalent of a bribe, if you will. I think at a certain level, the problem, it's isn't... the problem is defining that certain level. You know, I know it when I see it. It, well, we have it, lots of crimes that we can define a core, and we can't always define its outer edges. And that's, I don't think that's ever been a reason why we've said we won't attempt to criminalize this conduct at all, because we don't know it in all of its, in, in all of its incantations. I, I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying I think that part of the core purpose of the honest services fraud was to fill in some of these gaps. I understand that both of you and your clients have problems with that because it's been expanded beyond. But, you know, and it gets back to is the problem of how we define or a bribe or a kickback, if we have conduct that is the virtual equivalent but we don't have that explicit quid pro quo, um, is everyone comfortable with the idea that we'll just walk away and say, oh, never mind? Well, I, mean, I, I, I think there are policy issues that one can argue about, and I think, you know, one could argue for a regime in which you can't make any contributions to politics. You know, there, there are lots of different things you could think about doing, but the thing that I don't think you can think about doing is putting people in jail for doing things that other things the way. Are you there? You faded out. I'm. Oh dear. All right. Well, well, Ron, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Well, uh, you know, I I, I agree that huh? that it, it's a it's a. It's a, it's a difficult problem. It's difficult to define. We can all agree that we want good government. The question is defining crimes, defining things that destroy people's lives, take away their freedom. I, I don't want, you know, politicians who use their offices to, to get money. You know, I, look, I was a prosecutor for 10 years and joyfully prosecuted those crimes. Prosecutors who, uh, who as Don said, you know, uh, in the gray area, who accept benefits where there is no uh, official action that can be tied to it, but the government may believe that there are those crimes. Uh, I, you've, you've lost me. That, that should not be enforced in criminal court. Don, do you have something to add to that? 
Well, I, unfortunately, I, my cell phone failed me, and I it's okay. To what was being Go said. ahead. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I know the answer to this. Well, you know what I, I, I tried what to I, complete your thoughts. <laughs> what I still want to know, and maybe I'm an old dense on this, but if I'm an alderman and I get a job for my precinct captain because he did a great job in my runoff election, should I be worried? Or am I probably pretty good after today's opinion? I think I think if you I think well I, I think you're probably pretty good, um, barring you know barring evidence of what some. But he doesn't pay me money for his job. I he think what? you're golden. <laughs> <laughs> you have job security today. Uh, do you have thoughts on that, Ron? Yeah, I I think that's right. You you do. All right. Today. You know, you don't you don't have job security because you can be taken out of that office anytime, and so can your patron, and that's exactly right. But I think you can rest easy about going to jail. Okay, and and how do you think today's opinion is going to play with the general public? Are they going to see this as a good thing because they felt the law was too vague and the government was abusing it? Or are they going to see it as another instance of politicians and corporate leaders getting away with bad behavior? I think the latter. I mean, we know from, you know, post-election polls and all that voters really care about public corruption. And I think when it becomes, as the dust settles after today and it becomes apparent, you know, how many convictions are now going to be at risk or overthrown, how many people will not be able to be prosecuted because of this opinion, and the kind of conduct, including some of the conduct we're talking about here today, that, you know, will no longer be considered criminal and will be beyond the reach of the law, I think that there is going to be a great deal of concern on people. And I think that concern, I think that's going to resonate with them a lot more than the idea that, you know, there are constitutional problems. I I think that's going to be too intellectual and too abstract, but I I think there's going to be public concern with the opinion. Don, what do you think? Well, I I think what we we see with the Tea Party movement and things like that, that people are um, going to look – there's a whole lot of people who are looking for any reason to be dissatisfied with – what the government's doing, period. And uh, and that includes the Supreme Court. So I'm sure there will be people who will grumble and groan about this, but anybody who thinks about it seems to me has to view what the court has done as a very sensible effort to, you know, implement the principle that people shouldn't be convicted uh, of doing things unless they've done something that uh, they had knowledge of being a crime before they did it. Okay, and And Ron? What yeah. do you think? I, I agree. I agree with Don. That's the you know the court. The court did not throw out the statute. The court you know, struck a reasonable compromise. Okay. Well, I think that's everything I wanted to ask the three of you. Does anyone want to add anything? I, I just like to throw out one thing, and that is, I, I think there's there's actually a very interesting sort of jurisprudential. Uh, I guess you'd say dispute uh, floating in these opinions. And that is the, the, the difference between the majority and Justice Scalia, Scalia's dissent for, for him and the two other members of the court. And it's about the question of to what extent the court is justified in, you know, in what he would say is redrafting a statute who, whose words don't say a word of anything about um, bribes or kickbacks or anything like that. 
in order to save it. And, you know, he has a view that says Congress drafts legislation, the court can't rewrite it for them. And the others, I think, in a very practical way, worked, I guess you could say creatively, maybe some would say too creatively, to save the core intent of, uh, of Congress. And it's interesting to me that there is now today, on this subject at least, a majority of six who are prepared to essentially rewrite a statute in order to save it. And I think I agree with that, frankly. Um, I think a lot of people may not, but I think it's an interesting question about what the Supreme Court does and what it properly should do. I, I have a question. I think, do you think this is a return to a kind of judicial activism we haven't seen in a while? Do I? Yeah, I'm just curious. No, 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 I, well, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a form of activism, I, yeah. I think. But I think, you know, I think it's more fairly described as the court um, working pragmatically together to, to reach a practical conclusion that clearly gives respect to what Congress was trying to do, but also recognizes the constitutional limits on what you can do to people, you know, in, in terms of criminal prosecution. Um, I, so I, I, w- I would stay away from th- terminology like activism and restraint, because I think I think this is a good example probably of the court acting in a sensible and appropriate way. But I, I think there's a lot of room to debate that. I, I think it is sensible, but I, I don't shy away from the term. I think it is activism. I think, you know, Scalia said, I believe right to Don, uh, you know, in, during the argument, uh, or to, to the government during Don's argument, uh, you know, look, I could, I assume I could draft this statute in a way that was constitutional. That's not my job. That's Congress's right. job. Why should I take my time to do that now? You know, that, right. that, that in a pejorative way. But uh, I think that's pretty close to a quote. He, that's right. That's well, that's his view, and, that, and that's the view of three on the court, but six on the court, it's not their view. Right. right. And good for them. I, I'm if I were you know, if I were drawing up a model Supreme Court justice, I would want justices that did strive to honor what Congress what they believe Congress intended uh and fashion a common sense resolution. But you know, another word for that is activism. Although having thrown the term out, I could also see it as judicial restraint because I think they do respect respect the power of Congress. So, you know, maybe it's a blend of both. So it's a new kind of jurisprudence that is, at bottom, mostly pragmatic. This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strength of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.